Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll. This is Black Cats Run. Today's episode, Red, Yellow, Green. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to let those of you know who have been maybe looking for more content on the podcast. I'm anticipating that there will be more over the next several months. As a teacher, I'm obviously subject to the energy demands of my profession. And additionally, uh, some of the original structure that I had in mind in terms of having guests on the podcast just has not panned out the way that I had hoped. So I've been sort of restructuring and replanning my approach here. If you have any topics that you would like us to cover on the pod, feel free to let us know on the Instagram at Black Cats Run. Let's get into today's episode. The use of intervals in training is a separator between the recreational fitness people and the committed or the initiated. How do we know this is true? Well, because intervals are hard. They're a test, or at least we like to think, they're a test of your mental and physical capacity to overcome adversity. We like to think that they demonstrate our ability to do what sport and training is all about. It's the most Icarus-esque thing you can do. You're pushing for this limit you're embracing the risk of failure you're demonstrating that you can through an act of will displace the possibility of failure that failure is something that you can remove through the act of conscious focus energy engagement with the task or a challenge and i think perhaps unsurprisingly that I would think this, that the concept of intervals, especially the social constructs that have been built up and then reinforced matter significantly when we try to understand them. I think that those constructs speak in large part to the way in which in our desire to demonstrate to ourselves and for some of us to demonstrate to others that we have elevated ourselves above a more crass existence. And in that process, we have moved to that plane of the elite existence of athlete. And in doing so, we tend to reinforce and perpetuate a series of norms that exist around the cult of the interval. And Doing that might give sort of a more maybe transient kind of social reward, but ultimately, in so doing, we consequence ourselves because all we ever are really accomplishing is taking away from the more substantive transformative reward, the reward of actual improvement. So 
what do we think we need to know about intervals and what should we know instead? A good starting place is really the starting place. You know, your earliest experience with training for sports. What was that? How did that engage you? And obviously there can't be right or wrong answers to that. And I'm not trying to insinuate or suggest that there are. But I think that people enter into this space as a neophyte. As much as I think some of the structures of initiation and separation are problematic and limiting in terms of what the kind of outcomes of experience that we um, ultimately, I guess, access through engaging with sport can be, I think it's also true that there is going to inevitably be some sort of uh, transition from a state of, of ignorance to a state of at least presumed knowledge. And then, you know, I think one of the conceits of this podcast is that you don't really have this A to B process where you go from being outsider to insider and then that's all there is. I think that there necessarily should be a continuing exploration. And I I think that's not just for social and cultural reasons. I also think that's um, very much the case because of, you know, the limited extent to which we really understand um, in terms of the sort of more tangible, I suppose you could say scientific effects of training, except I think scientific, when we say scientific in terms of training, a lot of times people ultimately take that to mean that, oh, well, we're, we're talking about or we're referring to simply a set of, you know, uh, definable um, biochemical cellular level concepts. And I think that's been kind of an unfortunate narrowing of that. Um, value, right? But really what we're talking about is that, you know, training is a real thing because it leads to real results, um, even if sometimes those interventions may be somewhat placebo or uh, non-seboesque in nature. And I think that question, though, of when we engage in training, it's an act of performance, who are we performing for? And for me, my perspective has always been by default that I'm really ultimately doing this for myself. And I'm perfectly happy to admit that um, being acknowledged or, or appreciated by, you know, other people can be a positive, nice thing. But if I've done a race or I guess now right with Strava, our training is so much more visible than it used to be before platforms and spaces like that. If I do a, a training activity, training session, um, and I sort of get some sort of positive feedback or I guess in the case of Strava, literal kudos um, from other people, if I don't first feel like good about what I did um, and I don't feel that it meets my kind of internal standard or framework of performance, then you know it doesn't really um, elevate my experience. But I think that for other people, it's a very different thing and it's much more external. You know, how can I be perceived in this space? And, you know, the idea of being an athlete, you know, is that something that has expanded as a kind of a concept of a role or identity? 
And is that a result of, you know, the ways in which we have created opportunities to project these kinds of identities? I mean, historically, it seems to be the case that um, identities develop in culture um, is commensurate to the ability for those identities to be expressed and, you know, recognized. And the more recognition there is, the more likely people are to build into those identities. And that's caused an um, expansion of, of what that means for people of a certain level of affluence or leisure time, you know, who and how do they want to be seen um, as. And I think, you know, obviously the internet and, and the ways in which we've created social spaces using the internet has had a huge impact on that. And therefore, when we go to do training um, and engage in the practice of being an athlete, you know, it becomes something that it's not, well, in this particular time of the day, I'm doing this activity. Um, you know, to be honest, I don't consider myself a runner. I would feel very awkward telling somebody I'm a runner, or I'm a cyclist. Um, I guess I recognize that I am, you know, by consequence of the things that I do with my time, I am in some extent an athlete, but I haven't thought about, you know, how can I cultivate that or project that? But it's certainly true that that's a reflection of my more sort of internal perspective on this stuff is I want to feel kind of those internal rewards of competence. I want to feel, you know, achieving. And I especially like to feel the, you know, very tangible, real athletic experience of feeling powerful and and controlled and, and strong, um, overcoming something that's challenging. Right. And especially that, you know, really elevating feeling that can come with being fast. And, but for other people, I think that's not necessarily true. I think that the perspective of others or outsiders is a huge factor that drives what they do, um, how they present, how they dress, the values that they uh, claim to have, I think are oftentimes extremely malleable and are very much subject to what they perceive others to have value for. And I think this kind of behavior has a significant consequence on the nature of interval training because interval training has is probably the most badge value-esque thing um, that you can do as an athlete to try to demonstrate your worth. And I would argue it has greater badge value than you know your volume of training because I think that people are much more conflicted and, you know, unhappy with volume um, of training and to the extent where in in some contexts, I think it's sort of been presented almost as a a perception that it's like a kind of cheating in a way that, well, you do all this volume and and you do well, but that's not that in a sense somehow invalidates that because you're not actually naturally talented or gifted, but you're just sort of, you know, forcing your way by, by brute force to the top by doing all of this you know, all of this volume of work, which is, you know, the reality is that's an idiotic attitude to have because the purpose of this stuff is to find a way to practice at it so that you improve. And if you're getting improvements, then what you're doing is clearly working to some degree or else there wouldn't be any improvement improvements to refer to. But with intervals, I think that people very much um, can see that as this real kind of like social badge, social achievement. And I think that's where you see it as a dividing line between people who 
sort of do fitness activities versus people who really want to buy into that. And it's like, you know, by you're sort of like giving your pound of flesh out through, you know, executing these intervals, which are these, you know, by almost every established norm, a very challenging, um, hard thing to do, which requires a certain kind of environment, a certain kind of mental energy. They're generally very unsustainable over longer periods of time without significant support or intervention to keep people engaged with it. And even then, I think the attritional rate is basically unacceptable um, from a coaching perspective and from a um, athlete perspective. But if you can sort of do this stuff, people will project this. And a lot of the stuff you see um, in the kind of new spaces of where people show themselves being an athlete are, you know, representations of intensity. And even in, in the context of people just like, oh, I'm just running. And it's like, you know, it would be cool to do, find a way to evaluate and say, okay, the average running content creator, you know, how fast are they running for their content? You know, sort of represented as, well, here I am just out for my run. And, you know, what are they, it seems like they're all running at least five minute pace. And it's like, nobody runs like that. And then you get into the, you can go to the next level of the people with these kind of like ridiculously, you know, overly contrived, choreographed, um, you know, patterns of movement. And anybody who's been around running or cycling and swimming, whatever, you know, you can tell the difference between what's authentic and what's staged. But the staged has been normalized. And I think intervals are something that because of their value as this sort of like uh, brand, you know, in the sense of a, you know, like a, an iron brand, you know, that you are sort of stamping yourself with the authority of that brand and say, look what I can do. I can tolerate this. And then that somehow is seen to elevate your status. And when that's a prevalent concept, I don't think that we're looking at intervals as something that are really going to be super valuable or super helpful anymore for training because it's now become dogmatic. It's about answering questions that have nothing to do with training question of, am I an athlete question of, am I initiated question of how can I separate myself um, from the, you know, neophytes and show that I have something of status. And I think there's this, when we try to determine is somebody good or not, we look at the scaling of how complex is what they're doing and how intense is it? And we expect to see those things scale together. And the more complex and the more intense you see it, the more likely are you to see that as being being competent. You know, and I think the even like the kudoing norms on Strava have changed. You know, and I th- I mean personally, to be honest, I can't say that I particularly care, but you know, it's interesting to think about you know, has our concept, our kind of like Overton window of what is acceptable to give kudos to something that's changed over time. Because I will go and do activities that, you know, I'm like, I'll finish and I'll be like, that was awesome. I feel really good about that. And then it's funny, um, you know, how that will get maybe a couple of kudos from people. And then I'll do something that I think is kind of like stupid. And then that will get kudos, right? And I guess everybody has their own criteria and some people it's probably just mindlessly clicking that button. But 
our perception, right? Of what are we rewarding, right? Well, that's an external reward. That's a response of other people, right? And on some level, are we going to kind of like be influenced to perceive certain things are more as more or less valuable based on the kind of social response that we get? But our attitudes about sport and training and and what this stuff means and how we should engage with it, et cetera, that is something that we've learned. This isn't really native to us, except if you want to get to the level of kind of nuances of individual personality, which is not at all kind of where we're trying to go with this here. So I titled this episode uh, Red, Yellow, Green for a Reason. We think about that idea of earliest experience for sport. I think for me, the idea of being internally oriented, how like, do I feel, um, you know, and like, how can I feel stronger and, and faster? And am I experiencing that sense of, of fitness? And um, I think that's something that was modeled for me. Um, and so I think for a lot of us, right, we're learning r- right away from when we get exposed to sport. And I think that we're all learning something different, though. Right. So if you think about a traffic light, You know, traffic lights work as a form of social communication because we all learn the same thing to interpret this in the same way. And it's really important to interpret that correctly. Suppose that we all went to an intersection and some people got there earlier and happened to be able to drive through because, um, that happened to be the timing of the traffic pattern. And then other people maybe sort of like squeaked through and then the people at the back just sort of had a massive collision. And what if the way that we interpreted that was not to say that, well, you need to listen or to these, to this understanding of, you know, this is what the traffic light means. And, you know, when it says, yellow or red, that doesn't mean accelerate. It means you need to slow down or you need to recognize you need to come to a stop. And only when it's green, do you want to move forward, right? Um, What if instead of communicating that, we just said, well, you know, if you didn't get to go through the intersection, you need to try harder. You need to push more, right? You need to give more. And that's why you're not getting through that. So now what's happening is we're not learning um, how to interpret these signals correctly, right? We're going to learn something very different, right? And so these traffic signals are something that we take largely for granted because we're exposed to this very early on. And as a culture, we're really good at communicating about this stuff. And yes, there's some percentage of people who, you know, obviously seem to take, um, great satisfaction in defying every single reasonable traffic safety regulation there is. But, you know, I think we kind of dismiss those people as the outliers of our driving community. But, um, you know, like we need that standardization and we need that ability to interpret, right, to make meaning of the experience. So with training, right, when we go to work out, um, you know, we think of intervals as just kind of this absolute, but I think it actually makes more sense to think of tra- training and doing intervals as a kind of a traffic signal, 
right? Where some people are getting signals or responses that, okay, it's green. This is good. You can go. This is what you want to be doing. Some people are getting the yellow signal that, you know, hey, you know what? You need to, to slow down or else this is going to end, end badly. And then some people are getting the stop, right? They're getting the red light. But what do we learn here? I think that a lot of us um, are actually learning the opposite of what we should be learning. And that becomes our defined norm. And I think that goes back to the kind of performance aspect of performative performance athletes, where it's more important to be perceived as special and elite than it is to necessarily actually cultivate that, where it's like it doesn't matter how like fit or strong you actually are, as long as you're getting the kind of social recognition, as long as you're achieving the badge value, if you will, of being elite, then like, but you are elite, right? And that concept of what am I actually learning to do is, is irrelevant. And so that will model and reinforce a certain idea of, you know, interval training, for example. And I think what happens is that this starts to perpetuate the norm that it's all about pushing yourself. And the more resistance that you're experiencing, the more you want to push yourself. And intervals become this platform by which um, I think a small group of people learn by accident, you know, to train because they just happen to be coming through that process with the green light. You know, the coach is setting a standard or a norm of intensity for the session for them it happens to line up with their sort of already established kind of aerobic capacity and they're able to do that and they're able to green light their way through that and then they go to the races and they can race hard you know they can they can accelerate they can attack on the bike they can maintain their hit and maintain a target tempo or pace in the run right their swim feels you know, powerful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then other people, like when they're getting that yellow light or that red light, and if they're, you know, experiencing that resistance internally, you know, they're being told that, no, that's green. So you have a group of people that's being told green is green. You have a group of people being told that yellow is green. And then you have a group of people that's just like absolutely imploding. And they're being told that red is green. So now everybody just sort of looks at intervals as the green light. And that idea is like, well, and it's, and I think this works on an, another level, frankly, because I think it's become this norm where it's like, you know, it, it's the green light because it's, well, intervals, that's actually what's going to move you forward the most. And, you know, people get really fixated on that. And, you know, because scaled complexity and scaled intensity also means proportional depreciation, depreciation in the number of people who can uh, actually like execute it. So that scarcity of performance is there. And so for some reason, when we see less people being successful, we in athletics, we assume that, well, their practices must be the right practices. Um, and we look for those, you know, that it's that weird outlier bias kind of thing that I've discussed this on other episodes, but that initial teaching sticks with us. And so we're all talking about intervals and we all think we're talking about the same thing and we're all experiencing it the same thing. So if you take that idea of the red light, yellow light, green light athletes, 
they're all doing the intervals. They're all talking about how hard they are. So they're all learning to interpret intervals as hard. And then the effort that they're executing in the intervals is hard. But they're not all actually doing the same effort. Okay. And it's actually the faster athletes that are doing less effort. You can run fast and hard and still be in that green light zone. And then you can, you know, actually look really incompetent and be struggling and just absolutely um, out of gas um, because what you've been set up to do is not appropriate for the kind of practice you need to be doing to improve. Um, But there's no differentiation around that. Now, I'm generalizing. I think that there are some coaches and some environments where that differentiation does happen. But I think for the majority of people, that's not the case. And I think as an athletic culture, um, you know, as participation in athletics is changing, um, especially around this sort of increased emphasis on I want to identify as being an athlete. I feel like, for example, being an you know, NCAA athlete has sort of more and more reached this point of it's almost like this like class level <laughs> divide in society. It's kind of messed up, honestly. Um, the point where I feel like it's in, it's rude to say that, well, I myself was an NCAA athlete because it seems like you're trying to flex on people with this kind of badge value of this thing. And it's like, no, that just happens to be true. That happens to be my experience, but I don't want to talk about that anymore (laughs) in social context because of the way it has this value of like, well, you're trying to draw attention to yourself or self-promote. So you can't, unless you want to do that, right? It's like, okay, you have to think twice about talking about those things. And so the way that we're reinforcing this evolving sports culture is we're reinforcing this sort of like um, undynamic way of thinking about this stuff. And we're, we're modeling and celebrating this kind of like, wow, you know, these green lights, right? These high performers, just people who just go and improve year to year and get all the, the cool results and the accolades, you know, that's just um, awesome. Right. And that the rest of us, well, we need to develop the ability to push into that, to push against that. And the intervals are where we traditionally see that, um, you know, the men separated from the boys, the wheat from the chaff, you know, the alphas from the betas, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And we have lots of language around this stuff for a reason. But um, like pushing yourself doesn't work. You know, that those athletes who are green lighting this stuff are doing it because it's within a functional, uh, a functionally fractional utilization of their aerobic abilities. And for the other athletes, it's not. And so they're not getting anywhere and, and they're not progressing. You know, certainly for my part, you know, what I learned was, you know, basically intervals were just like going into absolute failure in every rep. And there really was no conversations about, well, how are you feeling? And when I coached um, cross country and, and track with high school athletes, that was something that I, I tried to, you know, make a point of emphasis was talking to them about how this stuff should feel, you know, thinking about how, you know, we should be learning about these kinds of intensities, trying to explain, like, what are we actually trying to do? How do you know if you're being productive or not? and try to make that kind of level of discernment and differentiation. And, but these first experiences, right, I think in general kind of establish this postulate of like, 
you know, intensity dictates success. And if we're not hitting these targets, it's because we just logically must not be going hard enough. And I, as I'm sure a lot of people have, and I think some people maybe never um, break out of that mindset, but I certainly went through a period where I was like convinced that, you know, there was something wrong basically uh, with me because I couldn't execute the speeds or the paces that other people did. And I wanted to be competent and I wanted to do well. And, you know, now what I understand is that I wasn't being given the opportunity to train aerobically. And if I happen to be, though, in a random sampling of athletes where I just happen to have the highest aerobic characteristic, I would have experienced different outcomes. And I don't mean that to say that I would have done some crazy, awesome, you know, world-level athletics performance, but it would have been a different, a significantly different outcome because that's what happens when you are actually able to train at the right intensity. But through these intervals, which is this highly performative thing, which it's about demonstrating how tough you are, and then that's the bias of the coach or if you're you know, self-coach, right? You then have that duality of role. Like when you're designing stuff, you're designing in that expectation that people will demonstrate their ability to be mentally tough, right? And that the tougher they are, the better they'll do. And I went into a cross-country locker room that was had prefontaine quotes all around the rectangle of the space over the top of the lockers, right? And that certainly encouraged a very specific narrow mindset, right? And it was not something that ever suggested that, okay, is the reason why I'm I'm struggling because I'm I'm trying too hard, right? Like if you're drowning, thrashing around isn't isn't going to help, right? You need to find some sort of an equilibrium an ability to recognize, right, red light, yellow light, green light. And I think then that what you start to learn, um, you know, is if this is the method by which you're learning what it should feel like, you're you're being, being given an answer through the intervals in terms of what your ability is. And for a lot of us, we're learning that the slower we are, the less mental capacity we have, and that, in a sense, we are then lesser than those people who can go harder and that's how it's described to us right is that they are not it's not just that they're going faster they're also able to go harder because in order to go faster you have to be willing to go harder and you know uh, one of my brothers spent a lot of time in high school just really trying to go out and trying to you know teach himself to go harder because that was you know the presumed answer to that now, I'm actually not saying that, you know, everybody should be equivalent in athletics and there shouldn't be any kind of hierarchy and, you know, there sh- we should run without finishing times, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I think the competitiveness of the sport is not the issue. What I'm saying is that there's a failure at the level of teaching and learning that's represented by this. I think it's a clear failure of coaches to teach athletes properly. It's a, definitely a fire and forget of, you know, you look up the workouts and, you know, you go, you can go and I, the internet again, makes it easier to be ignorant. Um, you know, one of the ironies because you can find cheap information or really cheap garbage masquerading as information. I think a lot of it shouldn't even qualify as information, but you know, you can look this stuff up. Well, these are the workouts for athletes to run such and such. And then there's no thought or consideration. There's no like actual observation of, you know, how the athletes are, are going. And that's, you know, 
not the rule, but that's the norm. Okay. And the fact that it's norm means most people are subjected to this. Um, and even look at like software, you know, training software, you know, the rise of like internet programs for training on the bike, for example, and something like trainer road or Zwift workouts. I mean, they're basically totally useless because again, it's this, you know, everything's a green light, you know, and the, and the harder it is, that's good. You know, you got to learn, you got to get better at it. And the, the answer again is that's incorrect. Um, if you want to get better at this stuff. You need to have more differentiation about the intensity. And then as a consequence, you have people who love intervals. You have people who are ambiguous about intervals and you have people who hate intervals and just kind of like give up on, you know, serious exercise and fitness because it's not working for them um, because the intensity that they learned is is wrong. And I say this as somebody who struggled with, you know, intervals and training for probably 20 years. So, I mean, for me, this is a very real uh, experience. And I think it's kind of ironic because um, in actuality, a lot of the best performing um, athletes, especially with running, for example, that I've, you know, been around, been on teams with, um, sort of generally met the standards of slackers. They did very little or they tried to do very little or they would lay off in, in workouts or they'd, you know, whine and complain to get out of things or they'd go really slow. I mean, there were some pretty um, serious uh, drug users on the team in college who also happened to sometimes be really good at running the 800. You know, very nice guys who happen to also do a lot of recreational drugs. And you wouldn't think that, oh, that's a formula for success. But, you know, you if you wanted to get, you know, maybe overly interpretive, could you argue, argue that they're kind of like hedonistic mindset of, hey, man, you know, I want to feel good. You know, did that sort of encourage them to be like, well, okay, we did these intervals and now let's just, you know, sort of double, you know, jog, you know, fake jog laps around the indoor track and play catch with a tennis ball. Well, you know, the rest of us suckers were like, oh, yeah, we got to get out there and, and go for it. Um, and, you know, they, those were the guys who went out and, and really had the best racing, <laughs> you know, where the rest of us, you know, I think they were just kind of green lighting it. And the rest of us were kind of like, okay, there's a red light. I better step on the gas. And, you know, like for my part, you know, it didn't seem to matter how hard I trained. It didn't seem to yield better results. Uh, like if there, for example, if there was a blizzard, I went to college in Maine. If there was a blizzard, uh, I would rush to the gym um, and get, get my stuff on and go run 10 miles in the storm um, before the coach could send out the inevitable email telling us to just, you know, run in, run around the indoor track for 40 minutes because of the storm. You know, it was like, no, I'm, I'm going to get out there. And I remember one day I went out, I sprained my ankle as I was leaving the parking lot because I slipped and then I got up and I just kept running and ran nine miles on the ankle and then came back. Um, and that didn't yield anything, right? I mean, there's all kinds of red lights there. Now, I actually don't think it is inherently bad to run in, in the snow. I think that it's actually fine, but I think it's more so to the point of cultivating that mentality is not something that's going to be rewarded, right? And I did, but I didn't learn how to differentiate, you know, and I just saw, you know, the greater the resistance, the greater I needed to resist. And I think that, you know, and that's an example of, you know, 
a training run, but like in, in intervals, you know, I didn't ever question are the intervals too hard. I just questioned myself, you know, I'm too soft. I can't do this. And I think that, you know, as a consequence, you take this concept of the interval, um, this overwhelmingly influential factor that is probably one of the more common sort of uh, intersport, you know, training components. And I think that you you recognize that this is actually a super complicated thing. And I think the silence, silencing effect around intervals, because if you've listened to enough episodes of the podcast, you know that one of my kind of overarching interpretations or suggestions is that, um, you know, there's a series of kind of broad silencing effects where some of the phenomena that we might want to think about, um, engage with, reflect on, are kind of like the things that, you know, we find that there's the most kind of like Orwellian control over where we have ways to shut people down from talking about it. Um, And I refer to those as silencing effects. And I think the silencing effect about intervals is to be like, nope, it's no more complicated than what's written on the paper. And then you just have to go out and do it. And either you can do it or you can't. And that's it. And there's nothing else to discuss. And that the act of discussing it is a sign of weakness. And again, the whole performative performance, performance of performative athletic culture, blah, blah, blah. But that's really about, you know, sending the right messages through what you do. And and one of those messages is it's not acceptable to question this stuff because then that's a form of making excuses. And I think not asking questions is actually a form of ignorance and you can't progress if you don't ask questions. So let's try to maybe um, unpack to repack um, the concept of an interval. And I think actually, if you really think about it, um, in sort of isolation from this social context, I think what you can realize is that um, intervals are very different um, from what people think they are, and they also actually are very simple. So let's start with the simple. I think the simplest definition is to say that uh, intervals is the concept that there are periods of work and that there will necessarily be periods of non-work. Now, all training is interval training. And I'm not saying this to be obnoxious, but it's true, right? Because like you don't pick up a sport and then just continuously do that sport nonstop until you decide you are permanently done with that sport, because that would be the only context in which really it's not interval training. Now, in terms of sports culture, we've taken intervals to mean, um, you know, a series of work periods of a higher level of intensity um, with a period of um, some sort of rest or recovery in between. And that although you go a little bit further and that the sort of implication either stated explicitly or just sort of implied through the design is that uh, the intensity is something that cannot be sustained um, for the total work duration of the interval session without those recoveries. Okay. And that is really uh, important to understand because this is part of the reason why intervals have lent themselves to this idea of like testing ourselves and measuring ourselves. And so I think that's another simple definition of intervals 
as well is that intervals are a means by which people can try to quantify, evaluate, and sort of more easily compare um, their fitness over time. And over a big enough time scale and big enough time sample, I think that would be valid. But a lot of times we're looking at this on a very short time scale because, um, you know, as people, the scales on which fitness change are much different. Um, you know, the seek, as I've said before, the secret is there is no secret. You just kind of have to figure out, you know, a routine that works, a routine that you can sustain. You know, are, are you feeling strong? And chances are, if you're feeling strong and you do things that are a little bit challenging, but not overwhelming, you're going to get better. But, you know, if you go back again to the red light, yellow light, green light phenomena, right? It becomes tricky because how do we know if we're there? And then people sort of actually start looking for yellow light and even red light intensity in their intervals. So you see how we go from the definition and then we begin to spiral downward quite quickly. And then the next thing you know, you're back in that, you know, original mode of now you're you're performing workouts and training for reasons that have really moved very far away from what's actually um, within your sort of proficient level of, of practice to bring up another concept from previous episodes on the podcast. So I think the ability to measure is good. And I think that's a good value of um, interval training, right? The ability to see what you're doing over time. We need to be able to see that. If we can find genuinely empirical insights that actually tie to the ability to determine if we're improving, that's a good thing. We want to know that we want to collect that. Um, but like the expression of self-measurement, if you will, is not the same thing as good practice. And these intervals, the design of them very easily encourages us to push ourselves to the maximum. And, you know, this is where um, if you're on a team, right, this or oftentimes the coach will think that, I mean, coaching motivation comes into play here in a major way because a lot of coaches think that it's about being a motivator and that's based on the belief that, you know, people don't like want to do well. But the reason why we think motivation is so important is because of that green light illusion. And it's, well, these people aren't actually doing what you think they should be able to do because you have set unrealistic expectations. And that if you found the intensity for the, you know, uh, less speedy athletes in your training group on your team, and that was, you know, equivalent to the demand you're, you're placing on the, the top athlete, you would find a similar level of engagement because in these team environments, overwhelmingly people have already self-selected to be there. And most people want very badly um, to get better. And it's you're, you're exploiting and manipulating their desire to do better. And you, as a coach, you're gaslighting them without realizing it maybe into thinking that they're inadequate and they're not tough enough. And that's like really uh, detrimental and, um, you know, because it, it works against your the ultimate goal of creating a high-performing group. And, you know, it also works against, I think, what is also an important goal of, you know, having a positive impact on people through sport, right? That it's supposed, it should be, I guess it's not supposed to be anything per se, but it should be and it, it can be um, something that really adds to people's experience, um, you know, and their sense of self. But when we teach people they're not tough enough, well, we're taking away from that. And, you know, so the intervals through the way in which we learn about them encourage us to push ourselves to the maximum. And, you know, when we do that, uh, we exceed the threshold of proficiency in practice. 
I remember being sent um, over to, there was like this thor- uh, bird sanctuary in Lewiston, Thorncrag Bird Sanctuary or whatever. And there was a one path that sort of went from the parking lot and kind of went more or less straight all the way up uh, to the summit where there was a pretty infamous large rock there. And I remember being sent over there. I don't remember the context exactly why, um, you know, but being sent over there by myself, um, by Coach Fresh to do a session where I had to go up and down this hill a bunch of times. And it was kind of interesting because like it was a hill and I don't even, I have no recollection of how long it is or how fast I did these. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe it was like two, probably, probably between two and three minutes, I would guess of running. Um, but you know, we would go and, and I would do this effort and whatever, maybe did probably six to 10, somewhere in that range. And I finished and I felt good. And I had probably in hindsight, I recognized that that was probably like a green lighted workout. And, you know, so I went and reported back to coach and I was shown kind of some of the spreadsheets, which basically I ended up walking away from that and being like, Oh, okay. So I suck. <laughs> because, you know, by whatever the times or the expectation, then uh, for Coach Fresh, it was Franklin Park equivalent. So it was, well, based on this workout, this is equivalent to this at Franklin Park and blah, blah, blah. And I think what, you know, I would suggest maybe it was more important to be like, okay, you went out and you did this workout, you you felt controlled and you did well the whole way. That's the kind of training that's going to allow you to get better. You know, who cares what the current Franklin Park equivalent of it is? You know, I'm at the level that I'm at. It's, you know, I'm not going to suddenly transcend by going out and exhibiting some capacity in a workout. But I think there is that sense of, you know, you know, you're, why aren't you motivated enough to, to, to run hard enough to do well? Um, and right. And so examples of the, all of these missed learning opportunities. And I think it would be extremely, um, unkind to, to blame the coach because I think it's the culture of the sport, you know, and I think in general, most of us operate in that kind of a paradigm because that's what we've been taught. That's what we've learned. And so we perpetuate that because we've learned it. And I think that, you know, intervals then become this dynamic where it's something that people really understand the least you know, and, and we take this concept of, well, it's simple. You just go out and it's just the workout and you do this. Um, and, and when things are simple, um, it creates the illusion of understanding. And when people have the illusion of understanding, they tend to be the most confident in their decision-making. Um, and I think even if people maybe don't feel confident, if they see something that's simple, they're more likely to act with confidence. And this is the dynamic of of how there's a significant difference, I believe, between the phenomena of belief versus understanding. You know, belief to me is very similar to ignorance. Um, it's an unwillingness to take in new information. It's the belief, it's, I mean, try not to use the word, but it's the conviction and, and the sort of sense of knowledge that there is no additional information that could be acquired. And, you know, again, it, it recalls the Dunning-Kruger effect of the more incompetent people are, the more certain they are of their competence. Um, you know, and you know, the less knowledge we have, the more likely we are to feel confident. But understanding is a mindset that, okay, there's always more information to acquire. And of course, you know, this means that whenever you deal with anything in athletics that has 
belief as a component, it's going to be way easier to exert social control or promote some conformity of thought. So I, I did this little experiment on the Instagram story the other day. I posted these three training weeks, and they're um, also up there in a post if you want to take a look at them. But there was a week A, a week B, and a week C. And week A, I just posted just doing um, training. You could think of it as running or cycling or swimming. I don't care. doesn't matter. Um, but training where it was just like 60 minutes, 30 minutes, and that was just it. There was just one block of time in the morning or the afternoon session. And then I posted a, a training week, week B, where every session was some sort of an interval breakdown. And then I posted a week C, where there were some days with intervals and then other days where the session was just continuous. And I asked, what do people think is um, the best training week? And the majority of people picked week C. And I think that um, is an example of the kind of selection bias that really influences this stuff, is we perceive things to be the most valuable or most productive because we've just kind of been told or they've been presented to us or that was our experience and that we don't really know why. Now, some people pick the other ones and, you know, I don't want to overly speculate on on why that is. But, you know, to my mind, the week that people would pick is the week that would make sense. I would the least picked week um, was the week that was I believe was the week with all of the intervals. Right. And I think that has to do with people's perceptions of intensity, that if you present somebody with a week and say this, everything you're going to do is intervals, people say, oh, my goodness, intervals are hard. That's so hard. Right. And so then if you present something that's just, you know, continuous blocks of exercise, people be like, OK, well, that's easy, but that's not going to make you fast. And there's this perception of, OK, well, I need to have blocks of continuous activity and then I need to have intervals and the combination of those things are what's valuable. And. So this is based on what we think is the most productive is the selection bias here, not what is the most productive. And I think it reflects that we don't know because the reality is, um, and I'm going to explain this more, there is no difference from one week to the next. And I know that's hard to maybe wrap your head around because you could look at that and say, but they're literally different. And what I would say to you is you can't actually conclude that. You don't know that and that you're assuming there's this difference um, because of the, do you think that there's this difference between a training episode, training activity session that is designed to be unbroken versus a training session or activity that has implied um, pauses of some kind in between periods of work? But all training is intervals because that first week, that was intervals. There were like two intervals a day and there were hours of rest in between and then there was sleeping in between and that was interval training. So it's all interval training. Um, I think one of the, the driving selection biases is the bias of speed, especially for runners, right? We look for that. We think that's a key limiter. We have this concept of speed is this thing and how do I get fast and how do I get the speed? And we don't really understand what speed is. Most of us, we just talk about it. But I would invite you to go uh, run as fast as you can for 100 meters, ride as hard as you can for 30 seconds, uh, swim you know, 25 yards as fast as you can and take a look at what speed or power can you produce and then ask yourself, is that really what's limiting you? You know, are you limited by your speed? And I think the answer is probably not. Um, 
It's almost never the issue, but that's ironically where we're the most anxious. And, you know, anytime I even think about speed, I always become a little bit like, oh man, I guess I don't have any speed. It's just in my brain, right? Have I lost my speed? You know, blah, 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 right? And I think it's just this thing that gets talked about and pushed out there and pushed out there. And it's associated with this thing that we must have and that the only way we can attain it is through intervals. And um, I don't think that's true. Um, So like we have some basic logic reasoning strategies that we bring to perspective-based situations in general, like comparing week A to B to week C. And I think one strategy is what I want to call like the Goldilocks strategy, where we're looking for what's the just right option. So what the other product of this little thought experiment, Instagram survey experiment was, is that it's a demonstration of opportunity cost. And there's an effect in economics behavior where the opportunity cost changes the value of the original option. And uh, Dan Airely, who's a economics professor at Duke, um, did, you know, this study where um, they, you know, asked people to um, rate the attractiveness of a person by presenting an image of the person and then a slightly sort of more warped, distortive, or basically uglier version of that person. And what they found is that the presence of the uglier person uh, made people more likely to see the original option as more attractive. And that's what a lot of the value of our training is constructed on. It's Our training is constructed on that value of that alternative. And I think those sort of three things for most of us are kind of the only three possibilities. You can do no intervals, you could in theory do all intervals, or you can do a combination of those. And almost nobody is going to try to do all intervals, although for people who are really um, tuned into swimming, like actually in swimming, like all intervals is kind of a norm. When I did swim team, I, it's all we ever did. I, there was one practice that happened and that was when I was a junior in high school and I had convinced the coach a couple times to just let me design the workout. Um, and so then I, I got to do that twice. And then the one, one time I said, we're just going to swim continuously for an hour. <laughs> and that was the only time I've ever, ever gotten in the pool. Um, and you know, almost 10 years of doing swim competitive swimming. And it wasn't just a bunch of intervals on the whiteboard. And I'm not saying that's necessarily swimming training is, is bad or broken per se. I mean, obviously people swim well, right? Just like, you know, it's hard to say that, well, in cycling training or running training, people are in crisis. But at the same time, I think if you look at cycling training in the United States, it's really weird that Americans basically are, are not very good overall um, at cycling. And I feel that that's a, an evidence-based statement because if you look at the level of performance um, on the international level, like American athletes just don't get to that level. And I think it's more complicated and certainly than, you know, this conversation about intervals. But I, I do think ultimately the way you train is the most important thing because that's where your fitness comes from. And there's no performance without fitness. Um, and maybe some cyclists just don't understand that. But so this selection problem, right? We're going to pick things based on what we think is the most effective, but we're suggesting that the way in which we reach that conclusion itself might be somewhat limited. And interval training has 
taken on the coat, the connotation of, you know, because it's higher intensity and it obviously has to be higher intensity and it takes a higher level of skill, then there must be um, higher yield. But again, when you broaden that to perspective of all training is interval training, um, then what we really need to ask the question is, is really about what's the intensity? Because um, the intensity is constantly variable in training. And, you know, a huge and hopefully obvious conclusion at this point is that, well, that's going to be very subjective. Again, go back to the um, red, yellow, green light example, right? You know, different people can be assigned the same intervals and the coach or the athlete might not be knowledgeable enough or skilled enough to correctly or under or just not understand enough to correctly determine that intensity. Um, I did a hill repeat workout with Jillian uh, the other day um, and I should be at a disadvantage going uphill given my size and we did 10 times this hill that is about 10% on the dirt road and like maybe uh, 0.35 of a mile. Um, so a little over a third of a mile. And, you know, she just lit it up going into the first rep out of the saddle. And by, you know, and I was feeling feeling pretty slugged out from, you know, the 17-mile run and ride I had done two days ago. But then by the fifth or sixth interval, I'm just rode right back up to her. And, and then, you know, rode right through her and, you know, she couldn't hang. Right. And, and she like took that to red lighted it. And I went to my kind of green light concept of intensity. And it was just like, you know, the difference was, was very clear. Right. And her sense of urgency to get benefit from what she was doing motivated her to approach it in this way that was ultimately very unproductive. Um, and, and just spent the whole time just kind of blowing up and struggling. Whereas for me, you know, I had a good session, you know, and I wasn't, and I, and the first couple of reps for me were like relatively much like 30 seconds slower, but then the last seven reps were great. And for her, it was the first three reps were okay. And then the last seven reps were all 30 seconds slower. And, you know, that matters because, we do want to find the right intensity, but the right intensity isn't like the maximum intensity. You know, she basically struck out with the, well, if I have an absolute gold star outing for myself, I'll be able to do this intensity. But even if you can, like, is that even the right intensity, right? Um, you know, I think that, again, you have to ask the right questions and to ask the right questions, you have to have the right framework of knowledge to even recognize what those uh, are. So when you look at this idea of like, well, if I really want to get the benefit today, I got to finally go get after it. And, you know, I suggested afterwards, I said, you know, I don't understand where this sudden sense of urgency is coming from, you know, trying to set the tempo and push the pace on rides. And now, you know, suddenly being trying to be super aggressive uh, in workouts, like that's not how you've made the progression to where you are, such as that level is you know, you know, if you've progressed at all, it's because there were some good approaches and it's not about upping the ante in terms of intensity. It's about like actually training consistently in a way that you, you know, aren't, you know, having breaks in your training. And, and that's where intervals become really problematic for people is that a lot of times it leads to the breakdown in training because 
people are adopting these intensities that are just too much. And you'll see stuff that encourages this norm, you know, online, you know, such and such miler does such and such workout and they've got, I mean, they, right, the ambiguous they, but people create content now where they talk to high school runners, which I think is great. And then the high school runners get an opportunity to talk about how nasty their workouts are and everybody gets to just be like, oh my God, because I guess for some reason in, in some parts of running culture, doing nasty workouts is more important or more impressive than doing uh, nasty races. Um, which I guess like if that's what you want to do, just kind of bring that sort of CrossFit idea of like, well, the workout is the performance, then you can do that, right? And maybe that needs to become a sport is there needs to be like a uh, endurance athlete CrossFit thing where you, instead of going and doing racing, you just go and you do workouts, right? Maybe that's an unexplored niche um, that, you know, there would be an audience for because certainly people love to fawn and just sit around and just be so awestruck by the crazy special workout splits that people can do. And then it's like, how long would you last? And it's like, I, you know, who cares? <laughs> That's not the right question. Um, and I understand that for people out there, they're, they're punching out these molds in their content, you know, sweatshops because they're looking for interaction or engagement. That's fine. But we also want to recognize that doing this is also teaching people how to think because you're exposing people to these, it becomes an understanding, right? If you put something out there, it becomes a way to think. And, you know, I think that, you know, we, we need to be mindful of, you know, how we're promoting, uh, you know, dialogue and perception around this stuff. And I think it's okay if people don't care um, about what people learn about this stuff. But I would nonetheless make the observation that this is a part of the reason why, you know, something like intervals um, has become so convoluted and, and problematic, despite what I'm also suggesting is its, its essential simplicity. Because these time periods of work or distances, you know, but 30 seconds or five minutes or 60 minutes, what do you do with that, right? Um, most of us are going to conclude that it should be something different. And that's not necessarily a wrong conclusion per se, but why do we reach that conclusion? Well, as an athlete, we project certain concepts of work when we see these numbers. And a, a simple iteration of that is to say, you know, pacing value, right? How much can we do? How fast can we go during that time? And then we also have the associative value of sessions, you know, I saw something, you know, eight by 400 for the mile, you know, name a better workout. And <laughs> just saying that makes me throw up in my own mouth. But, you know, historically, this is like the world record brain approach. So Bannister did X. So that must be good. So that's what I need to do. Well, guess what? There's probably now close to 2000 sub four minute milers. And I'm getting that number because, you know, when I tried to quickly look this up, it looks like in 2021, there were about uh, 1,664. So you got to figure now that's probably getting pretty close to 2000, but being disproportionately influenced by the OG four minute miler is probably a little bit foolish. Um, you know, and, and then if, you know, feeds in again to these ideas of, well, to see how good I am, I need to set a PR in the workout and that intervals are designed for us to do the maximum intensity within that framework. And that like the unspoken language of the interval is if it's, if you're doing five times 30 seconds um, with 
you should go as hard as you can. And then, you know, really, if you're a man, uh, you take it with 60 seconds rest or 30 seconds rest. And, and then it's like not even thinking about the purpose of the recovery, but you just want to performatively take as little recovery as possible so you can show people that you're a friggin' baller. And again, right, if you want to be a, uh, my workouts are my performance, I guess people can do that. But I think most people are doing this stuff because they think it's going to lead to an improvement in racing. So it can be like that. Training can be whatever you want. You can also train um, for the mile by eating pieces of chalk while riding a unicycle. Knock yourself out, okay? Um, that's might still probably still better than sitting on a couch all day to train for the mile, right? But like what's actually effective? And that's where we want to go in our thinking about interval training is if interval training kind of has this like problematic identity, this kind of paradoxical state of like complexity through its simplicity. Um, it has all of this like cultural weight around the ways in which we signify and express values that we want to be associated about us as athletes. Um, what should we actually be doing? And, and uh, the next part of this um, series of episodes, that's what we're going to move into. We're going to talk about how do you use intervals correctly and that if you take the definition of intervals as periods of work, what can the concept of using different lengths of work in training help us to accomplish? Thanks for checking out today's episode of Black Cats Run. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes, uh, feel free to recommend the podcast to somebody you know who would also enjoy this kind of discussion. Um, you can check us out on our Instagram at Black Cats Run. We'll catch you next time.